the book of Revelation is fundamentally a book about hope. It's a letter written to churches that are suffering. They're enduring persecution. They're facing an uncertain future. And they very much feel like they're on the losing side of history. And what the church needs to know in times of suffering is that Jesus is with his church. When we think about the headship of Christ, we imagine him as sort of the guy who founded the church and then he just passed it on to the apostles and they passed it on. And it's this thing that just keeps going on, but its founder is absent. He's off doing other things. He's you know starting other companies or something like that. But that's not the picture we see in Revelation. We see that Jesus walks among his churches. He knows their sufferings and he knows their sins. So what we see is Christ is very attentive in Revelation chapter one, and we're gonna see in Revelation two, the churches are described as lampstands. Now in the temple, the lampstands were supposed to represent trees because the temple itself was sort of a mini garden of Eden. Well, in the heavenly temple that we see in Revelation, the churches are those lampstands and Christ, and he's wearing this priestly robe and this priestly attire is walking with them. He's walking among them, looking at them, inspecting them, tending to them. He is there with them. So the apostle John who wrote the book of Revelation is weaving together this Edenic and temple language to unveil a Christ who is present with his people in their suffering. And that ought to bring great comfort, but also a healthy dose of fear. This is Understanding Revelation. In the last episode, I introduced a particular perspective that I'm taking on the book of Revelation. It's a perspective within the Protestant tradition and within Christian tradition, but it's not the perspective of the church. It's not the perspective of our church, but it is a perspective that I think is legitimate that I'm going to take. And you can decide for yourself whether it's persuasive or not. There's really three ways to think about this. One, like I said in the intro, Revelation is a book about hope. Two, the timeline of Revelation is about events that John says are near to his present day. And that matches up with Jesus' words in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, where Jesus says, within a generation, the people listening to him are going to see the end of an age, the coming of the Son of Man, and the destruction of the temple. I think that Revelation is primarily focused about events that are soon to happen to John. So they're in our past, but his future. But they do set a pattern for how things are gonna happen throughout all of redemptive history as well. But for the purpose of Revelation, I think the timeline is pointing primarily to the events leading up to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And I'll develop that as this series goes on. Third, the symbols are meant to evoke Old Testament imagery. So when you see the symbols, when you see these strange kind of bizarre figures, think. Where does this show up in the Old Testament? And that will help unlock a little bit of the meaning of what John is trying to express. Now, in Revelation chapters two and three, we see seven written messages to seven churches, symbolized as lampstands, in Asia. And the number seven is really important. It symbolizes fullness and perfection. And you're gonna see seven many, many times in the book of Revelation. There's gonna be seven seals, seven trumpets, seven balls of judgment, there's seven angels. But the idea of fullness means that this message applies not only to the seven historical real churches that John is writing to, but to the fullness of church at all times. So there's stuff in here that still applies to us, even though it's not directly speaking 
to our modern churches. Christ also speaks to the churches in a seven-part format. You'll notice that he begins by saying, to the angel. That's the messenger. And I mentioned in the first episode that I think messenger refers to the pastor or the bishop of the church because angel in Greek just means messenger. So it begins with, to the angel. The second thing he says is the words of him. So there's a description of Christ. Then he says something that he knows, right? I know this about you. And then he says something he has against the church. Then there's a call to repent, a call to hear what the spirit says, and then a promise to the one who conquers, who overcomes and who repents and who endures until the end. So there's seven parts to Jesus's sort of audit of each church. And it's this idea of this is the fullness of Christ's revelation to each of these churches. And we're just going to look at Revelation 2 at the first four churches, the church at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and Thyatira. So let's start with the church at Ephesus. That's the first seven verses of Revelation chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first, If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So Jesus addresses the church in Ephesus first, and they pass the test of doctrinal orthodoxy, but they fail the test of love. Unlike some of the other churches, you kick out false teachers like the Nicolaitans. You hate what Christ hates, false apostles, heretical teachers, all those kinds of things. So far, so good. But they fail at the test of love. They fail to love who Christ loves, namely each other. Faithfulness in one area does not excuse unfaithfulness in another. When a parent asks a child if she cleaned her room, it does the child no good to say, no, but it's okay because I washed the dishes. Okay, well, washing the dishes doesn't excuse you from obeying my command to clean your room. Christ called those who love him to keep his commandments. And part of keeping his commandments is loving your neighbor as yourself. And so there's a lack of love here. They have all their doctrines sorted out, but they have forgotten that love is what binds it all together. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 when Paul says, If I've own knowledge, but I've no love, I have nothing. Now, Ephesus must repent by going through this process. They must remember their first love. They must remember from where they fell. Remember when you did excel at love. Remember when you did have this as part of your community. Now, with that in mind, repent, change your mind, turn around, and now act accordingly. He says, return to the works you had at first. Start acting in line with what God commands. Now, this is not works righteousness. This is simply God calling us to live with integrity. He wants what we declare and what we do to be aligned. And then he ends by saying the spirit speaks to the church. But if the church fails to listen, 
Christ will remove their lampstand, leaving that occupied region in spiritual darkness. I love how he views churches. Churches are these beacons of light and hope, but if they become unfaithful, either by forgetting their first love or by believing false teaching, their light gets snuffed out. And then the surrounding region gets consumed in darkness. Now, it's important to note here that Jesus treats churches as corporate entities. He doesn't just view individual Christians, but he sees these local churches. And when he says he's going to take your lampstand away or snuff out your light, it doesn't mean that every person in Ephesus loses their salvation. I don't think you can lose your salvation, but it is talking about a corporate witness. You will no longer be regarded as a church if you abandon true teaching, if you abandon the ethical standard that God has called you to. God opens up and he shuts down churches. If you think about liberal churches that have abandoned the gospel, that have denied traditional sexual ethics of Christianity, that have denied the authority of the word of God, they are no longer churches. They have been abandoned by Christ. That ought to sober us up, that we may never become so proud as to deny the true teaching of Christ and to accept false teachers, but more importantly, to lose our love to forget what this is all about. So Ephesus, remember your first love. Then he moves on to the church at Smyrna. Smyrna is a very interesting church, and I think you'll see why. Because this is the one church in which Christ actually does not give them something to repent about. Now listen to verses 8 through 11 about the church at Smyrna. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So Jesus describes Smyrna as an impoverished and persecuted church. And the people who are persecuting them are Jews from a synagogue of Satan. Now, Satan means accuser. And these Jews are accusing Christians of blasphemy for worshiping Christ. And you see this all throughout the gospels. Now you'll notice that the original tension is between ethnic Jews. You have ethnic Jews who are following Christ with Christ himself being ethnically Jewish and all of his apostles being ethnically Jewish. And then their brothers, who are also ethnically Jewish, are rejecting the gospel, rejecting Christ. And so there's this tension within the Jewish people based upon the identity of Christ. John says, look, even though they have the outward appearance of being God's people, if you reject the Messiah, you are showing you are actually working with the forces of darkness. That's a terrifying reality. He's saying that the synagogues, these outward symbols of religious piety, have become possessed, in a sense, by demonic power because they are anti-Christ. And so, though they speak of themselves as Jews, they have rejected the fulfillment of what the Jewish faith was pointing towards, namely, fulfillment in Jesus Christ. John the Apostle himself is a Jew, so this is not some kind of anti-Semitic hatred of ethnic Jewish people, and that should always be rejected by Christians. But the issue is not ethnicity, but worship. Now, it's interesting that Jesus introduces himself as the one who has died and come to life. He's the first and the last. Now, why would this be important to a church that is suffering persecution and poverty 
Well, they need to know that if they're going to be faithful unto death, that they follow a savior who has conquered death. And so Jesus is telling them, I'm not calling you to something I've not been called to myself and endured. And the destiny and the pattern of Christ is the destiny and pattern of the church. Just like Christ, we die to self and we rise again. We will die and we will be resurrected like Christ. And the church is going to follow in Christ's footsteps. So Christ is leading the charge and he's saying that my pattern of life ought to give you hope that you too will conquer death because I have paved the way for you. And I think this is why he doesn't have something to rebuke them for. Persecution and suffering brings a sanctifying effect upon a church. The suffering is enough discipline. And I I tend to think that that's true if you think about our brothers and sisters who are suffering in Iran or China or in different regions of South America and in Africa. They don't have time to quarrel about stupid things. They don't have time not to pray. Everything is so desperate for them that holiness is just a way of life. They have to fight for that. They have to fight for unity. And I think that's important for us to remember that sometimes when God wants to make a church holy, he'll bring suffering to them. And he sees the suffering of Samaritan and says, you guys are doing great. Don't ever think that because you don't have the worldly comforts of these other churches that God has abandoned you. In fact, God is proud of you. God loves you and God has nothing bad to say about you. He just wants you to hold on and endure until the end. And if you endure until the end, you'll receive a crown of life. That's the idea of a military wreath or a wreath of victory. You're a conqueror. Honor and vindication await for you. You look poor, but you are rich because of the way that you are faithful to me in suffering. And you will avoid the second death. This is actually going to point toward Revelation 20. The second death is eternal condemnation. Now, he's not saying that you have to be martyred in order to be saved, but he is saying that you need to understand, don't compare yourself. You look around and the world seems to prosper and you might be tempted to follow along and compromise with the world so that you won't suffer in this life. But he says, look, they're all headed toward condemnation. But if you stay faithful to me, you can do that because you know that in the end, you're going to be proven as the ones who are the true conquerors because you're going to avoid the second death that is coming to all who reject Christ. And you're going to receive the gift of eternal life. So hang on, Christ is with you. Then we have our third church, the church at Pergamum. And this is a church in which they are accepting the teachings of the Nicolaitans that the church at Ephesus rejected. And we're going to dive into why that is. Jesus says in verses 12 to 17, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, Christ brings a bit of a threat to the third church, Pergamum. And Pergamum is a mixed bag with faithful martyrs like Antipas walking like Christ and unfaithful heretics like the Nicolaitans walking like Antichrist. 
And this is important to remember that churches are mixed bags. You know, it's often said that if you find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll ruin it. Churches are full of sinners and churches always have to recognize that we're going to be a little bit of a mess. But Jesus recognizes that, look, there are faithful people in this church and there are unfaithful people. And he distinguishes between them. But he still puts an onus on the church as a whole to deal with this problem. So the Nicolaitans are this sect within the church at Pergamum who are teaching false doctrine. And they're running the same playbook as Balaam and Balak in Numbers 22 to 25. If you're not familiar with this story, Balak is a king. He's the king of the Moabites who are enemies of Israel. And he sends Balak, who's a prophet, to curse Israel. Now, Balak fails. He tries to curse them and it ends up flipping into a blessing by the grace of God. So they try a different, more indirect route. Balak and Balaam, they actually bring Moabite women to seduce the sons of Israel into idolatry and sexual immorality. So they go the indirect route. They use seduction. And that's what the Nicolaitans do. I don't know if they're necessarily bringing in women, but they are seducing the church with smooth words, teaching that sounds really nice. It meets felt needs. It sounds so persuasive and winsome and wonderful, but it's actually seducing the church into darkness. Sexual morality and false teaching go hand in hand oftentimes, and that's a problem in the first century church, and that's certainly a problem in the 21st century church. Lies gain plausibility when moral integrity is compromised. And Jesus says, I'm going to use my two-edged sword, my word, to bring truth. You're either going to believe my word or it's going to cut you. And that's a terrifying thought. And it's important to recognize that Satan attacks the church not only from the outside, but also from the inside. On the outside, there's Satan's throne, which might be a reference to the pagan temples that litter the region of Pergamum. So that's pagan religion. That's the outside world that's hostile. It's an outside threat. But on the inside are these false teachers, the Nicolaitans. And Jesus says, you got to be careful with both. Here's what he says. If you do that, you're going to receive the hidden manna and a white stone with a new name on it. The Ark of the Covenant, which is where God's spirit dwelt in the most holy place inside of the temple. That's the place that only the high priest could go once a year. In that place, there's the Ark of the Covenant. And inside of the Ark is a little jar of manna, which is the, the bread that fell from the heavens in Israel's wilderness trek. And here we see that there's a heavenly manna. Now, we've got to do some digging here. Moses constructs the tabernacle based upon a pattern that he sees on the mountain, meaning God gives a heavenly blueprint of the heavenly temple to be represented in an earthly way in an earthly temple. So if there's an earthly temple, there's a heavenly temple. There's earthly manna, there's heavenly manna. And this ties into the gospel of John because Jesus calls himself the bread of life. He is the heavenly manna. And so I think what... Jesus is saying is if you endure, if you keep yourself pure, if you turn away from this false teaching, in the end, you're going to meet me. You're going to know me in full. You're going to access the hidden secret manna, the bread of life, Christ Jesus himself for all of eternity. And I think there's this idea of intimate knowledge. I'm not really sure what the white stone with a new name is, but I think it represents that there'll be such an intimacy, a face-to-face -face knowledge of Christ that's going to make all of the suffering in this life worth it. The essence of eternal life is knowing Jesus Christ and being loved and known by him. That's a comforting thing in trials. That God knows us as individuals. He knows your name. He knows your struggles. And he knows what it's been like to suffer the way that you have. And he gives you a promise that you're going to know him and be known by him in a powerful, intimate way when you meet him face to face in eternity. The final church, Thyatira. This is verses 18 to 28. 
Christ speaks to the fourth church and he speaks to them by rebuking them about harboring a false teacher named Jezebel. And we'll get into details about who Jezebel is. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, like the church at Pergamum, Thyatira is a mixed bag. There are certain people following the false teaching of Jezebel, who herself is sexually immoral and is seducing other people to be sexually immoral and to eat food offered to idols, which is a form of idol worship. And then there's the faithful who have not followed the teachings of Jezebel. Unlike Ephesus, Thyatira is actually on the upswing. They're actually pursuing greater and greater works. And again, here's the, the, the reality of churches. Sometimes you can be really great in one area and really, really bad in another. And you've got to deal with that area in which you're really, really bad. If there's false teaching, but you're doing all these other great programs, that doesn't excuse the false teaching in your church. And Jesus doesn't let you off the hook in dealing with it. Jezebel is probably not this prophetess's actual name because it harkens back to the book of Kings with King Ahab, whose wife is Jezebel, who's a pagan. And what Jezebel does is she seduces King Ahab to turning Israel toward idols, toward Baal worship. And I think what John is doing is he's applying that kind of template to this woman here. Just like Jezebel was bringing people into spiritual adultery in Old Testament Israel, so this woman is performing a Jezebel-like ministry by seducing people to idol worship in first century Asia in the church of Thyatira. There's this irony here. God says she is defiling the marriage bed with her sexual immorality. Well, guess what? If you don't deal with her and if she doesn't repent, I'm going to throw her into a sick bed. I'm going to cause her to be sick and I might even kill the people who follow her. It's terrifying language. But you see it in the book of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, I believe. They're struck dead because they're lying to the Holy Spirit. So God is not afraid to take life, especially if it preserves the unity of his church. And what you see is this unholy trinity. There's this synagogue of Satan. Then there is the throne of Satan. And then there is the deep things of Satan. You have a synagogue, a priestly office, a throne, which is a kingly office, and you have deep teachings of Satan, a prophetic office, a false prophet, a false priest, a false king. And you can see here that Satan, whenever he tries to attack the church, he uses a counterfeit. And that's going to be really important as we get into the beasts 
and all those types of conflicts later on in the book of Revelation. But just note that for now. There's this allure of secret knowledge. Don't you want to know the deep things of God, these mystical things? And it's all seductive, and it's turning people away from true worship of Jesus Christ. This cult of personality, this promise of pleasure. And this can happen in a mega church. It can happen in a church of 20 people. And we always have to be careful about this. We cannot tolerate the teaching of Jezebel. We cannot tolerate teaching that sounds smooth and sweet like honey, but is really bitter and destructive to people. Now, the solution is to set your eyes on Christ. And Christ says that if you cast out Jezebel and you hold fast to true teaching, I'm going to give you the morning star. Now, Jesus Christ himself is referred to as the morning star in Revelation 22, verse 16. And I think there's, a, there's an interplay here where he's saying, if you give yourself to Jezebel, if you unify yourself in her with sexual immorality, you're going to forsake your union with me. But if you remain chaste, you're going to be a pure virgin for Christ because we are Christ's bride and we must remain holy, loyal, and devoted to him. The church faces the deep things of Satan, the throne of Satan, the synagogues of Satan, but she has on her side Christ, the prophet who speaks the deep things of God, Christ, the true king on a heavenly throne, and Christ, the high priest, in his temple, walking among his people by the spirit and strengthening them for battle. And so whatever church you're in, this is a warning and a challenge to churches that God sees the good that we do, however imperfect that it is. He sees who are faithful and unfaithful. And he gives stern warnings to churches as corporate entities not to tolerate sin, not to tolerate false teaching, but to be vigilant and to remember that Christ is with them, that his word cuts us to the core to set us on the right path. And that at the end of that path, when we endure, we will receive all that he has promised to us, that it is better to follow Christ and suffer than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of this world. We're going to come back next week looking at Revelation chapter 3, finishing off the last three churches of the seven churches that John writes to. Make sure you share this with friends. You can like this. You can leave a review. Let people know if this could be a helpful resource for them as they read the book of Revelation. 